Welcome to San Diego News Fix. I'm Mina Guerin. We have a special episode today featuring an in-depth interview with Dr. Patrick Sunxiang. His biotech firm, Immunity Bio, has received approval from the Food and Drug Administration to begin preliminary testing of its COVID-19 vaccine. Immunity Bio is based in Los Angeles and headed by Dr. Sunxiang, owner of the San Diego Union Tribune and Los Angeles Times. He recently spoke with Union Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Wozen about how Immunity Bio has made it to this phase of the vaccine trial. Jonathan, before we play the interview, can you give us an overview of what you discussed? Yeah, happy to do that, Nina. So we had a pretty wide-ranging conversation, uh, myself and Dr. Sun Xiang. But one of the first questions I asked him was, hey, you know, at this point in the vaccine game, we have 40-plus vaccines that are currently in clinical trials all over the world. Uh, what's different about your vaccine? So what, what's the potential upside in terms of how it's designed and how it works? How is this upcoming trial going to be conducted? So this is a phase one trial mainly to see if the vaccine is safe. Uh, we talked about the timeline for going from this initial trial to the kind of larger clinical studies that you need to be able to say that a vaccine is protective against COVID-19, aka if it actually works. And then there's this whole other piece that we get into in the second half about having a vaccine, but then also needing to be able to produce and distribute enough of that vaccine to enough parts of the world to actually uh, protect people and, and really bring this pandemic under control. So we start out with the science, but then we get into some more logistical uh, big picture things in our conversation. Okay, you do cover a lot of ground. Um, and just for people curious, how optimistic should we be about this vaccine? Yeah, that's a good question. It's always the big picture question with all this vaccine stuff. So personally, whenever I hear about any drug or vaccine entering a phase one trial, I try to keep in, keep in mind that this is the beginning of clinical trials. So most treatments, most vaccines don't even make it to clinical trials. Most of the ones that do, don't make it out. So this is a really long kind of gauntlet of testing and testing and testing to make sure if the vaccine is safe at a certain dose, if that dose actually gets you an immune response, and if that immune response does you any good in terms of protecting you from developing COVID-19 and transmitting that virus to others. So we don't really have the answers to any of those questions in people yet, which is the point of doing trials. So we clearly have more questions than answers. You know, I think we'll need to know if the vaccine works in people of all ages. So COVID has been hitting older folks pretty hard. And we know historically that older people don't have the best vaccine responses. We'll wanna know how long any immunity from this vaccine lasts. So are we talking about a year? Are we talking about a couple of years? five or 10 years. So Dr. Sunxiang has certain ideas about this vaccine being better in the sense that it activates a couple important pieces of the immune system that might be able to get you stronger and longer immunity. But ultimately, we, we need the data. We need the results. So I can say the approach makes sense. It's consistent with things I've been hearing from local scientists in terms of the types of immune cells that you need working together. But we won't be able to say if it works until we actually know. Yeah. 
Well, it's a fascinating conversation. Um, so Jonathan Wozen, thank you for joining us on San Diego News Fix. Let's listen now to your interview with Dr. Soon Xiang. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in to this conversation. My name is Jonathan Wozen. I'm the biotech reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune. And in that role, I've been keeping a close eye on the various COVID vaccine trials that have been rolling out over the past year. And very much looking forward to this conversation today with Dr. Patrick Sun Xiang, CEO of Immunity Bio and of NatQuest, uh, and also will disclose owner of the San Diego Union Tribune and Los Angeles Times. Um, so I, uh, Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this vaccine project with us. Pleased to be with you, Jonathan. So may, maybe to start off with some context, because I, I know that this is a vaccine trial that's gonna be starting, right? Phase one, looking at, at safety. Uh, obviously there's been a lot of vaccine trials in the news over the past, past uh, several months. And I think the latest numbers from the World Health Organization show that we've got more than 40 COVID-19 vaccines at some stage of clinical trials and more than maybe 140, 150 plus that are earlier in that pipeline. So what do you think is different about this vaccine that Immunity Bio is gonna be testing? What is the potential upside and, and where it makes sense to be jumping into the game at, at this stage where we are seeing some of the other big pharmas already in later stage uh, clinical trials? Yeah, I think, um, good question, because most of the vaccines, in fact, all of them in late stage clinical trials, have focused on trying to develop an antibody. By that we mean there's this protein that the, vex, the, the virus has called spike that enters into the human body and by creating a vaccine, vaccine against spike, you would have an antibody to prevent the virus from entering to the cell. Uh, the concern we had uh, by just having a single protein called spike was the antibodies, we do not know at this point how long they last, as I think everybody listened to. And coronavirus notoriously don't have long-lasting immunity. So the duration of immunity was very important from our perspective. And the opportunity to get long-term memory is not just antibodies, but a thing called T-cells. And there's now evidence that patients who had infection in 2003 from the SARS-CoV version one, 17 years later, 2020, have T-cell memory to this virus. The question was, how do they get this T-cell memory? And it turns out that the memory that they're generating is mainly to the inside of the virus protein called N or nucleocapsid. So we took on the challenge that not only did we want the antibody against spike, we really wanted the T cells against the innards of the virus called nucleocapsid. So the difference is that this vaccine has both N plus S to generate what we hope is long-term memory. Okay, and maybe just for context for some folks, when we talk about antibodies, we're talking about immune proteins that can essentially grab onto the surface of the virus and lock infection, right? And when we talk about T cells, we're talking about clearing infected cells. So you're trying to hit both of those pieces of the immune response to fight against COVID-19. Exactly. So by having both, you now activated the 
maximize you, your immune system uh, of having, not only trying to block it from entering, but block it once it's entered, killing the factory, so to speak, and clearing the virus. Okay. So there are a lot of different vaccine strategies that are being tested right now. Probably fair to say the researchers are trying things that are basically tried and true methods of building vaccines as well as things that are being developed for the first time. Uh, so this approach uses a viral vector vaccine. Could you talk a little bit about what it means to use another virus to deliver a vaccine? Because I think that's something that is kind of a new idea for a lot of folks. And how do you do that safely to use one virus to vaccinate against another? So if you could speak to that, that'd be great. Well, it's, it's, it's new, but not that new. There are um, viruses that have been used to treat, like even flu, believe it or not. Um, but one of the concepts is as well, is we all are exposed to a very innocuous virus called the adenovirus, which gives you the common cold and you recover from it. So taking this common cold virus and putting the COVID sequence into it allows this common cold virus to infect your body, so to speak, but teach your immune system about the COVID virus so that you have T cells that are reactive to the COVID virus. So the common cold virus, which is called the adenovirus, is now widely used. Johnson & Johnson, that's what they're using. CanSino in China, that's what they're using. Russia, that's what they're using. And Oxford, uh, is, that's what they're using. There's a problem, however, with all these, what we call first generation adenoviruses, because we all have uh, immunity against these adenoviruses. We have then T cells and antibodies that'll block even the adenoviruses and make the vaccine less effective. So to overcome that, um, AstraZeneca or Oxford has used what we call a chimpanzee adenovirus. It's quite literally a virus from adenovirus from a chimpanzee origin with the hope that you and I don't have antibodies to this chimpanzee adenovirus. The problem is once you give it, you have antibodies and you can do repeat injections. So one of the limitations of these adenovirus is can you give it multiple times and is it safe? Well, happily, um, that was why we were uh, serendipitously, maybe, uh, involved in the sense that we have taken this adenovirus in our cancer program. And for the last five years, I've given it to over 125 patients with cancer, in which we've taken the adenovirus and given the cancer sequence to the patients and generated CD4 and CD8 T cells, showing that not only is it safe, we can give it multiple times and it actually overcomes the presence or existence of this immunity. So we've used that, what we call this next generation human adenovirus, which is human and put in the S plus N. So here's a double whammy here where we have a safe adenovirus that we've given to 125 patients, demonstrated that we can actually convert T cells in patients with cancer who are already immunosuppressed. Number two, give it even if you have adenoviral immunity. And number three, put these constructs so we can get both N plus S, so we can get both T cells and antibodies. So there's, some, there's, you know, there's layers 
of differentiation that we've taken. Uh, and we hope this is the first of the next wave of uh, coronavirus vaccines. So maybe just to pivot a little bit to this upcoming clinical trial, uh, how is it going to work? So this is a phase one trial, right? So you're mainly looking at the safety of the vaccine. Can you say a little bit more about how you'll be testing and assessing safety here? Yeah, so when you do the phase one testing, you, you test two questions. Is the vector that you're giving, meaning that's delivering the, the contract safe? The happy news is we've already done this, as I said, over the last five years in multiple injections and over 125 patients. So we're pretty comfortable that the vector itself has very little adverse events. And more importantly, it's even what I call stealthy, immunologically stealthy. The second question you want to know is, um, the construct that you've put in from COVID, uh, is that safe? The good news is that the construct that we've all put in, which is the S, our contract newly put in is the N, um, and we've demonstrated that safety, not only in the small animal models, but in the non-human primate studies. But that's the question that is being answered. And the third question that's being answered is, what is the right dose? Um, so we're giving two different doses in these patients. And um, one is what we call an intermediate dose, and the other one is a higher dose. Uh, these are the same doses, by the way, that have been used by the Oxford group. And how long do you think it would take to have a good sense of the safety of that vector as well as the safety of the sort of particular COVID genes that you're, you're delivering? How long do you think that might take? Well, the exciting news about vaccinology is that you get a T-cell response within 14 days. Uh, you get, it takes a little longer for an antibody response to occur. So you inject um, what we call a prime on day one and you inject a boost on day 29. And by day 14, you will be able to take the blood and actually see uh, the beginnings of the response. And by day 28, you would have a good idea of the T-cell response and, and then um, a couple of weeks later, you could then measure also the antibody response. So the blood tests um, from the patient who received the vaccine is a strong indicator of what we call the immunogenicity uh, separate from the safety. So while this is a safety study, we will very quickly get very good uh, immunogenicity data from these patients. Okay. And is the safety piece something you can assess within a month, a couple of months, end of year? Yeah, I the, 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 again, the other good news is that, uh, you know, you, you, if you do see adverse uh, events, they occur pretty quickly as well within, you know, weeks to a month of the injection. Uh, now, there may be really rare um, adverse events that may take longer to produce, but you will see them not only in the small trial, but in the larger trials. And that's also continuously being monitored. And then... I mean, obviously, this is sort of a gauntlet of clinical trials that any vaccine needs to go through to show that it's safe and effective in large, diverse groups of people. When would you, in sort of an ideal timeline, envision being able to jump to those larger trials that could answer whether or not you're actually protecting people against COVID and inducing the sort of immune responses that you've been talking about? Well, what's exciting is we've just in the midst now of what we call a challenge trial in our non-human primate studies that BADA has supported. And the first results that's coming out of these um, macaque studies are very encouraging. 
uh, obviously in the phase one study, you will see blood levels of what you call seroconversion antibodies and T cells. The real true test will come when you do these randomized trials against placebo. And that's where we will move very quickly towards called a phase two slash three trial. There's a lot of learnings that's happened already uh, from all these other trials from the other companies working on adenovirus, whether it be Johnson Johnson, whether it be AstraZeneca, whether it be uh, from China. And these are all published results already, which are very encouraging that just, just the S alone gives you antibodies. Um, and all these phase three trials that they're measuring are measuring antibodies. We're going to extend that because not only will we measure the antibodies, we're also going to measure the T cells. So um, I'm hopeful, uh, based even on the data that's not ours, that uh, this S protein, which we've put in, which is no different from the S protein, but maybe uh, a little bit stronger because of the N, um, that we'll be able to see equivalent, if not better results. I think the hurdle that people are concerned about and have now um, been speaking is that 50% effectiveness. Um, and I think in the, in the world of pandemic, um, they want to get something out as effective as possible, quickly as possible. We hope to shoot to 50 and but more. In, and obviously, I don't know that until we do our randomized trials. But biologically, it would make sense that if you have both an antibody and a T cell that clears the infection, you should have a pretty effective vaccine. And, and that's sort of phase three, or whether it's a, what they call a phase two, three type of study. Is that something you could envision happening, I don't know, say March 2021? Do you have a sense of you know, time? Yeah. I hope even sooner than that, because we'll be able to get a very good idea you know, 28 days after our phase one um, study and immediately there while we're in phase one. So we are in this, well, I, I know you'd like to call this warp speed, but the ability to uh, go very quickly from phase one to two without large interruptions, uh, which normally would happen. Um, but because of all the information we've seen, and you know, we have 50,000 infections a day now, 200,000 deaths, um, this is a vicious virus and I think while speed is the essence, safety is of the essence, and I think most importantly, long-term durability and efficacy is of the essence. Um, and so the faster we get into our phase two randomized trials to prove it in phase three trials, the better for, we believe, for everybody. Yeah. Well, just because you mentioned uh, long-term efficacy, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. So one of the big unknowns, I think, here is how long protection from a vaccine would last, right? Everybody gets the flu shot essentially once a year. People who get it, get it once a year. There are other vaccines you take maybe once, twice in your life and you get really robust protection. You know, we are starting to hear about some cases of COVID reinfection from folks who got the virus naturally and are now getting it again, although that seems to be pretty rare for the moment. And those seem to be mostly resulting in mild cases or asymptomatic cases of people getting the virus. So. Try to give me, I know it's kind of an impossible question because we need the data, but how robust, how long would you hope that immunity from this vaccine would last? Are we talking about a couple of years? Are we talking about you know, closer to five or 10 years? What, what, well, what would the goal be here? 
what's encouraging is that those who've got SARS-CoV in 2003 have memories 17 years later. But that's not to antibodies. It's not antibody memory. It's actually T-cell memory. So my belief is if you can generate a vaccine that would mimic a full infection, but obviously not give you the infection, which means you need to actually give as many of the antigens or the proteins of the virus to your body. And that's what we're doing with N plus S. And if we take the cue that if you generate memory T cells to N, that they're long lasting, that is the hope. Um, obviously time will tell until you do the vaccine. I'm concerned about S alone because one generates antibodies and we already know from convalescent serum, patient, convalescing patients that the antibodies wane whether that means you're no longer immune, we don't know that. But I'm really worried about the fact that the S mutates. And as the S mutates, just like flu mutates, and you get this vaccine, and you've generated a vaccine against an S that's already mutated, um, that its own concern. On the other hand, the N protein does not mutate often. In fact, it's so conserved, it is necessary for the virus to replicate. So one is necessary for the virus to enter, the other one's necessary virus to replicate. And so if you can have a vaccine that attacks both, the, the hope is that you have long-term memory. Whether it's a year, two years, three years, at least we know from a natural infection, it's 17 years, 11 years and 17 years, and there's several publications now that have shown that to be at least scientifically true. Okay. So, yeah, we're talking a lot about sort of getting to the point where we have a vaccine that we know is safe and effective for some period of time. Another big piece of this whole equation, practically speaking, is actually getting a vaccine to all the people that need it, right? So talk to me about what we know in terms of how easily this vaccine would store and transport, which we know is going to be important in terms of getting it to places where, especially countries in this world where you don't have fancy freezers that can go to you know, minus 90 Fahrenheit or whatever the case may be. So how logistically feasible would it be to mass produce and mass distribute uh, this type of viral vector vaccine? I think you bring up probably one of the most important questions because we're talking about 7 billion people. More importantly, we're talking about people who are underserved in underserved countries that don't have refrigerators, freezers. Uh, and this is what we call the cold chain supply chain. And sadly, uh, you know, the, some of the vaccines, the RNA vaccines require what you call minus 80 degrees centigrade. It's equivalent to, you know, uh, freezers that really even sophisticated major hospitals don't really have. So this is a huge problem of how logistically you get this distributed and how stable it is because it has a stable life once it's out of those freezers, again, for a very short time. So it's very key to develop a vaccine, we believe, that can at least minimally just be refrigerated, which is what everyone else have at two to eight degrees centigrade. What would be ideal is to have it at room temperature and stable at room temperature. What would be even more ideal is to have it without needles, um, where you can either pop a tablet, a capsule, or uh, have a spray into your nose. So the ideal holy grail would be have a, a, a vaccine construct that is either refrigerated room temperature, 
that itself could be administered without needles or by mouth. And that's in fact, is exactly the construct that we've uh, in the process of developing. The first one we have is at two to eight degrees centigrade. We've now created an oral capsule that is at room temperature. And both of them have been tested with this non-human primate studies. And what's exciting, both have shown effective um, gen uh, immunogenicity in the early data so far. And maybe just to pick up on one of those threads there. So part of the reason to have a vaccine we can deliver through a, a spray, uh, my understanding is, is that that actually kind of mimics how you get exposed to this virus naturally, right? It's not injected necessarily into your arm. It's something that you breathe in. So the immune cells that you need to fight it off are actually the immune cells that sit at those parts of the body. And that's what we call mucosal immunity, right? So you get the you get the infection, natural infection, by breathing it in, going to your mouth, um, going into your lungs. So if we could create antibodies right at the entrance door, those are different kind of antibodies called IgA or mucosal antibodies or mucosal immunity. And you get mucosal immunity by actually giving the vaccine into those sites. So if you gave a spray into your nose or an oral capsule or to the back of your throat, or under your tongue. Those are the sites that would actually uh, enhance what we call IgA or mucosal immunity. So imagine if you had a formulation where you could do all of that and all give subcutaneously. There is value to giving it uh, as an injection because that I think is still the best way to get your T cells, which is part of your blood immune system. So our goal, our thought process is to have a single sub-Q shot, and then boost with either intranasally or orally. And now you have the best of all worlds with the same construct given repeatedly because of the fact that we have this adenovirus that can be given even though you may have adenoviral immunity. Okay. So in terms of the kind of timing of how this vaccine might eventually be rolled out to the public if it proves to be safe and effective. You know, one of the things I keep hearing from scientists is that this is a virus that is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. So are you sort of envisioning that this is the type of vaccine where it may not be the first one to get rolled out or the second one to get rolled out, but in subsequent years, subsequent flu seasons, falls, winters, when maybe, and we'll see what happens this year, we might be seeing you know, COVID spikes that potentially you'd be getting, you know, this kind of vaccine administered however often it needs to be. That's why I felt so strongly about the fact that we need to create what we call a so-called universal COVID. So between SARS-CoV and between MERS and between this, this episode of COVID, the thing that's constant throughout that is the nucleocapsid. So if you can go after and create a vaccine against this conserved region, these mutations that occur on the outside you know, uh, of the of the virus, there will be minor mutations occurring in the nucleocapsid, but not many. And therefore, you would have a vaccine that is protective across the seasons. And that's really the goal, um, to have a vaccine that is protective across the seasons. And the mutation that does largely occur is in the spike. So having just a, what I call a monovalent 
anti-spike vaccine, which is basically all the vaccines in late stage development today, is what I call the first generation wave. And the second generation wave, which is where we're about to launch, is trying to address biologically and scientifically long-term because of this nuclear capsid. Just to pivot a little bit, you know, do, do you have the partnerships, the kind of partnerships that you'll need to mass produce and distribute this vaccine? I mean, we've seen, you know, obviously, Oxford team up with AstraZeneca and Moderna and you know, the federal government, essentially, NIH, NIAID. Uh, you know, do you have the sort of collaboration that you'll need to uh, support that part of the process? Right now, we 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 it, um, <laughs> but it's okay. I think we clearly have been approaching border, um, approaching the government. We're in discussions with Canada, um, and um, I, I think we've taken an approach really of let's really develop deeply the science. We were really fortunate in the sense that our company has GMP manufacturing facilities. So I have, you know, multiple acres and multiple sites, thousands of square feet of manufacturing facilities because we were doing this for cancer. So we, as I said, we were lucky in the sense that we were almost designed as an organization at Quest and Mutibio because we were taking these adenoviruses and treating patients with cancer. We were building cell therapies like natural killer cells. So the biologic milieu of what we were doing as an organization fit immediately where we could transfer very quickly the entire uh, infrastructure that we really have. So we have to, we have 2000 liter tanks, we have five of them. And so we have a scale that can make drug substance over a hundred million units. What we don't have is the vials and the syringes and the things that have to go with that and the caps, et cetera, and the finished full facilities. And I'm hopeful uh, as this thing proceeds through phase one, two, I have ongoing discussions with the government um, to support us. And looking ahead, even beyond COVID, let's say that you know, this vaccine proves to be safe and effective and induce a good immune response that lasts for fair amount of time. What are some other types of diseases, other types of contexts where you could see, you mentioned you know, cancer being really what you guys originally started with, uh, for, for deploying, for using this kind of you know, viral vector vaccine? Because you know, I think most scientists would say that there will be more infectious diseases, right? Viruses mutate all the time, bacteria mutate all the time. So there will be new diseases that jump from animals to people and we're going to have to have ways to very quickly uh, come up with therapeutics and, and vaccines. So where, where do you see this strategy's long-term uh, value? So five years ago, we were really worried about national preparedness. So just, you know, we were, this is um, where by 2009, our team had developed the first and rapid vaccine using this for H1N1. So in 2009, we were able to very quickly take our adenovirus, put the H1N1, and show neutralization of H1N1. We subsequently then had built the vaccine for Lassa fever, chikungunya, um, SIV. So you're right, the pandemics, we are now in the phase where what will work, it's virus against man, uh, an infectious disease against man. 
and there are even more viruses more dangerous than even this coronavirus, even though I think this COVID virus is one of the most dangerous viruses we've ever seen in terms of lethality. So yes, what's exciting about this platform, and we've already demonstrated the capability of generating anti-infectious disease activities in all these infectious disease. And three years ago, I tried to go to um, Texas A&M where the, uh, the government had built this, I think 700 million facility for national preparedness of infectious diseases. And I wanted to actually build a stockpile Unfortunately, I wasn't successful in, in, in arguing that that's what's needed, and here we are today. So not only do we need to establish ourselves in national preparedness, you need to establish agile platforms using genomic sequencing and vectors, whatever they may be, in our case, the second generation antivirus, that can adapt very quickly to a dangerous infection that comes on board. We went from nothing in from February to finish form to completing the trials in monkeys now and in mice now to going to phase one in less than six months and i think uh we did the h1n1 in nine in nine weeks um, so i think i'm encouraged by the fact that we have the tools uh, we need the will the leadership the government public private policies uh, to interact together to have this national preparedness for this nation but it's not for the nation, it's actually for the world. I think um, we all in, when people say we all in this together, we are. Um, and what we need to do for not ourselves, but for Africa and for India and for, um, I'm concerned about the Apache nation and Navajo nation of our country. So this is, I think, um, what we need to sort of think about as we move forward here. So one last question, if folks are listening to this and interested in being part of this trial how do they sign up well you know we chose a hospital believe it or not with a doctor that saw the very first covid patient in california dr phil uh, robinson is his name let me make sure i get his full name that's correct dr phil robinson and he's at hoke hospital at newport beach so for patients who are interested to reach out to the uh, principal investigator the address is clinicalresearch at hoag.org, clinicalresearch at hoag.org. And um, the hospital is at One Hoag Drive in Newport Beach. And I'm very excited. Uh, not only uh, is he um, an incredible uh, researcher, um, we also are doing a separate trial with them on mesenchymal stem cells for patients in the ICU. So it's very exciting that uh, this hospital um, we'll take on this task or our first phase uh, one trial. Yeah, no, it all sounds very interesting and it's going to be interesting to see how this trial unfolds and what that does in terms of how we prepare for infectious diseases in the future. So sounds like you've got a lot of work to do. I should probably let you get back to it, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, well, thank you. Stay safe. Same. Okay, bye-bye, Jonathan. San Diego News Fix is a production of the San Diego Union Tribune. Our team includes Daniel Wheaton and myself, Nina Guerin. This podcast's editor is Digital Creative Director Beto Alvarez. If you want to join in on our recordings, like the Union Tribune on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, and you'll see us when we go live in the afternoons. 
Feel free to ask questions by commenting and we'll work them into the conversation live. San Diego News Fix is made possible by subscribers to the San Diego Union Tribune. As we live through this momentous time in history, the truth and facts matter. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go to sandiegouniontribune.com slash subscribe. Until next time.